Well, and I thought, uh, I kind of thought this would be a quiet morning. Of course it's not, so. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Belowski. I'm a second year MPP student, and I think it's worth taking a step back and remembering where we were this time last week. This time last week on Monday, the last Monday in September, we were just coming off a weekend where the big story was the New York Times disclosure about President Trump's tax returns. We were a day before the first presidential debate. Then the presidential debate happens on Tuesday, everything that goes along with that. And then a few days later, the president tests positive for COVID-19. And over the weekend, we really have no definitive insight into how the president's doing. And so this has all happened just in the last week. And the presidential election's coming up in less than a month. And so when we built this episode, we thought, you know what, let's just check in on the state of the races in Virginia, president, Senate, House races, and let's uh, do that with someone who knows a lot about a lot about this stuff. And so we are speaking with Kyle Condick, who is the managing editor of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball for UVA Center for Politics. He's been with the Center for Politics since 2011, and so so Kyle knows this stuff better than uh, almost anyone. And so we are very happy that that he uh, took some time out of what turned out to be a pretty busy Friday morning. We t- we spoke with Kyle uh, late Friday morning, and that was, of course, the, the news of the president testing positive for COVID-19 came out the night before. So we got into a little bit uh, about what that means for the race. And uh, long story short, who knows? But I'm sure we're in for an, we'll be in for another roller coaster of a ride this week, and so um, it's going to be that way up until the election. So let's get to it and let's talk to Kyle. So Kyle, we we always just start with all of our guests, uh, just with a, a simple question. With everything that's gone on since March, you know, how, how are you feeling? Uh, I mean, you know, uh, for me, it's been uh, it probably hasn't been quite as disruptive as maybe for some others, just because I've long uh, telecommuted. Uh, worked at home. So I've, uh, even though I've, I've been with the university uh, for almost 10 years now, but uh, um, uh, for, for a big chunk of that time, I've been work, living and working in Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, so from, from, from that standpoint, uh, you know, the, 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 the telecommuting is, is something that, that I'm used to. Now, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that me, like so many other Americans, would like to have done this year that we haven't been able to, and, and you know, traveling for you know, both for myself and for, for work. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, for, for, I would say probably a little bit less disruptive for me than maybe for some others. Well, Kyle, I kind of want to, before we dive into some of the, the races and the elections, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, because I think you have a really interesting background and in how you came to the, to the Center for Politics. Um, but you actually, uh, in undergrad, you were at uh, Ohio University, you were a journalism uh, major, I believe, and you went into journalism right out of college. And I'm curious just what, what those skills that you acquired as a journalist, like how did that lay the foundation kind of for, for what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. I, I I did. Yeah, I'm from the Cleveland area um, in Ohio, and I went to Ohio University, uh, went journalism program there, and then um, I worked at a couple of uh, small newspapers in Northeast Ohio right out of college, 
Um, and actually, some of that sort of helped expose me to some, some political uh, political reporting events. I didn't, I didn't really get interested in politics until, um, until I was in college, working at the college newspaper. And, and I, for me, the, the first election I really followed closely was the 2004 presidential election. Um, I'm, I'm going to be 37 here just to sort of play, place that. So I, I graduated from uh, undergrad in 2006. Um, Athens, where I went to school at high university, it's uh, it's kind of like Charlottesville, except it's smaller and not as nice. <laughs> so that's how I would describe it. Although I, I, you know, I, I had a great experience at at uh, uh, at, at Ohio U and, and in Athens. Um, but um, but yeah, so so but the first job I had out of college was uh, it was actually I got to cover a big congressional race in Eastern Ohio, um, and the the Democrat ended up winning, and so I, I covered his uh, you know going to Washington, and so. Uh, as a you know, twenty-three-year-old reporter at a tiny newspaper, I was in the House chamber for when Nancy Pelosi um, took the gavel for the first time as Speaker of the House, which I really thought was just kind of a cool historical moment. Um, and uh, I really, you know, kind of increasingly got interested in, in electoral politics, and uh, I got to do an opinion column at the next job that I was at about Ohio politics. And uh, then I actually worked in not in politics, but in kind of in politics and government for the. Uh, Richard Cordray was the Attorney General of Ohio, uh, got elected in 2008. Um, we were only in office for two years. Um, uh, he lost re-election in 2010, so I had to find something else to do. And so I just kind of applied for the job at the Center for Politics, ended up getting it, and uh, I've been with the Center ever since. And you mentioned your experience with Rich Cordray, who eventually went on to be the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, what, what led you to make that move and, and, and kind of what did, what did you take from, from that role? Because you were the director of policy and research, you know, for, for him. Yeah, it was a, it was a cool title, although it wasn't actually very descriptive of what I actually did in the office, which I was more, I was in more of kind of a media role, although I didn't, um, uh, I, 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 so I did a lot of speech writing for, for, um, for the attorney general. I did, uh, some media relations um, things. Uh, it was a great job and it was a great opportunity for me. Um, and uh, um, it also, if you know anything about newspapers, um, uh, it, it, I, I got to make a lot more money working for the state of Ohio than I did working in, uh, in newspapers. And so that was a great professional, professional break for me um, back, back then, uh, being able to go work for uh, go work for the state and, and, uh, uh, be in Columbus. And, uh, um, Cordray was, a, he, he, I think he's a great guy and he was a great guy to work for. Um, but you know, also, you know, those, those jobs can sort of come and go because if you serve at the pleasure of the attorney general and there's a, there's change administration and Cordray, Cordray is a Democrat. He lost to Mike DeWine, who was a Republican then a former U S Senator now actually the governor of the state of Ohio. Um, so, you know, you can, you can, you can be out pretty quickly. Um, uh, but, but that was a great experience for me, but at the same time, um, it worked out well in the end because, uh, I've had a great, uh, um, I've had a great uh, time working at the, at the center for politics. Yeah. I, uh, I started my career in media, so, uh, it was interesting. You, you would measure, you know, uh, I, I had health insurance and so it was pre Obamacare. And so I felt like I was lucky. Um, yeah, that's kind of how, how you measured whether or not. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a totally fair point. Well, so you mentioned you've been with the center for politics since, uh, since 2011 for, for quite a while. I'm curious, you know, how, how has your work evolved over that time? Um, you know, I think, I think you, um, you know, like with anything else, you sort of take on more responsibility the longer you're out of place. And, um, 
you know, you, but, but, you know, in, in many ways it's, it's been pretty similar in the sense that, um, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for our Cristobal newsletter, uh, not just myself, but, but, uh, uh, I'm kind of the day-to-day, um, person in, in charge of it. And, uh, you know, you, you, uh, uh, you're also able to, it, 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 when you do like, you know, a lot of commentary, which, which, I do and, and Professor Shabato does and my colleague uh, Miles Coleman also does, you can kind of build up a level of expertise in a subject area. And so um, uh, I've been able to do that on, you know, U.S. House and Senate elections and Electoral College. And also um, I wrote a book about my home state of Ohio that I think helped build my own expertise. Um, I just got my master's from Johns Hopkins and I've got a book coming out of my thesis for that that's on the U.S. House. Um, so you just, you kind of learn more, um, and you build up more experience. Uh, and, uh, although I think what's interesting is I, as I think that if you're, if you're open-minded about the subject area you might be studying, and of course, you know, at the university people are studying all sorts of things, um, that sometimes the, the, the more you learn kind of the less, you know, uh, and that it, it forces you to kind of be kind of humble about, or try to be humble about, about maybe, maybe what's going on and what, what, what we, what we know and what we don't know. Um, so from, from, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've got a pretty good handle on electoral politics, but it's such a complicated subject that you're always kind of picking up new things about it. Well, before we dive into the, the races, I'm just curious, a big kind of broad pick, kind of, um, a big picture question. Um, how's the approach to, to this presidential cycle been different from, from 2016? Because 2016 in the aftermath, there was a lot of um, lookbacks and about, you know, forecasting and modeling and, you know, what's that experience been like for you, you know, running this newsletter, you guys putting, putting out the forecast, you know, how, how's 2020 been different from, from 2016? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've been, um, I think we've tried to be more cautious this time also to look for ways in which things are similar to, to 2016 and are different, but of course, you know, every election is different, uh, in its, in its own way. Um, but, uh, uh, in, you know, being, um, uh, uh, cognizant of some of the uh some of the changes that i think have been recommended to pollsters i mean we don't really do a lot of polls ourselves but we uh we do look at a lot of polls obviously and one of the things that was that uh it, it seemed like some of the polling kind of maybe underestimated the trump vote in the midwest part of it though is that there were just a lot of undecideds in that election because trump and clinton were both so unpopular and as as it turned out i think a lot of the undecideds broke to uh to trump at the end um, this time there are fewer undecideds, there are few people, fewer people saying they're about third party. And so it may be that Joe Biden's current lead, as we're talking now, uh, is more stable than Clinton's was. And then 2016 was kind of more of a roller coaster race. Um, and even though it seems like there are huge news events happening all the time, you know, the recent passing of, of Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and then as we're speaking this morning, the news has just come out that um, Donald Trump and his and the First Lady have, uh, have gotten coronavirus you would think that and i don't know what's going to happen with the, with the you know, trump's diagnosis and if it has some sort of effect but i think the, the big takeaway has been that there have been all these sort of what seem like earth-shattering events but they haven't really changed the race all that much right that was actually going to be my question you know um and glad you brought it up with with the diagnosis i'm, I'm just curious like you know because first and foremost there's like this human reaction right where my goodness like i hope everyone's okay but then I, i'm in your role how do you tackle you know, the job aspect of this, right? And like, and like how you're analyzing the race when, when something like that's going on, like what, what's just kind of your approach to that? Um, it's a good question. You know, one thing that I, I generally don't do that I think a lot of people do on social media is sort of like, um, um, 
I guess, expressing my own sympathies or condolences or what have you, just because like, first of all, I don't think anyone necessarily is really, really cares what, what like, I don't know, what sort of like virtue signaling that I'm, that I'm doing myself. Um, and I also, I also think that sometimes if you, if you do that in one instance, you need to do that in every instance because there are always unfortunate things happening in the world. And so I just, I try to stay away from that. It's not to, it's not to mean I don't, I don't, I don't care. It's just that, um, it's not, I don't see that as, as part of my, uh, what I'm sort of trying to convey. And, you know, we, the crystal ball is a, is, 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 is a, is a newsletter focused on elections and issues that have to do with elections. So to the extent that we comment on these things, we want to talk about how does this affect the election? Or does it affect the election? And that, and I think sometimes that could come across almost as, as maybe a little crass, um, particularly in the immediate aftermath. But we're also in the position where we we're fortunate in that we don't publish every day, so we don't have to we don't have to comment on every single thing that happens. Um, but we're just trying to figure out put put things in context and try to figure out is this something that you know, is going to change the race? Uh, is this something that, you know, what should we be looking for in the numbers, et cetera? Um, and so, so, so that's, that's sort of how, how we're, uh, how, how, how we're trying to handle it. I believe this week is the first, um, the first week that you have uh, over 270 kind of in the column for, for Democrats. That's right. Um, I think it's two, 279. And I think there are 80 electoral votes that you all have as toss ups. And, you know, you mentioned Kyle that, um, not a lot has really changed the underlying numbers of this, despite all these are shattering events. And so to you, like what, what's the most intriguing question to you about this election and how it's going to play out over, over the next month, you know, considering oh, there, it do, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of movement. Um, the thing that I am most focused on right now is uh, the change in the white vote from 2016 in that the reason why Biden is polling better than Clinton performed is that he's doing markedly better with white voters. And you really see that pop up in the competitive states of the, um, of, of the Midwest in that those states are whiter than the national average. That's the one region of the country that is always, you know, consistently competitive. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely more so white women than white men. And also, um, uh, Biden is doing better amongst white voters who have a four-year college degree, um, Trump is still going to win white voters who don't have a four-year degree by a lot, potentially by not as much as 2016. And again, specifically, it's, it seems like he's losing white women who don't have a four-year degree. But if that, if Trump can't improve that, he's not going to win. Now, one thing I worry about is, is there some, is, is there some sort of polling problem with these kinds of voters or, or the polls somehow missing these kinds of voters? But I will say that in Democratic polling I've heard of, in Republican polling I've heard of, in almost all of the public stuff, you see this happening. You see Trump not doing as well as he needs to with white voters, and it's really impacting him in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Um, you know, but also, you know, Trump's leads, or sorry, Biden's leads in kind of the, the key swing states, um, specifically Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that were so important last time, you know, he's generally up like five, six, seven points in aggregate. Um, and also, unlike in 2016, where, where Hillary Clinton sometimes had those kinds of leads, um, you know, Biden's pretty close to 50% in the polls, so he doesn't even really necessarily need the undecideds to break toward him, um, even though they might, given that, uh, you know, the undecideds might break against the White House, given the kind of uh, uh, environment that we're in and the, the struggles that the country is having. 
Um, but I also am very cognizant that if the numbers get closer, um, you know, we're not that far away from this election being kind of a toss up, but we're also not that far away from it being a blowout because um, there's a world in which Biden wins like 400 electoral votes and wins like Texas and Georgia. But then there's also a world in which Biden wins the popular vote by three or four. And that's actually, there's some sort of weird scenario where Trump ekes out these victories again in these key swing states. So um, we're just trying to convey to the public that there is still, uh, I think there's still a decent amount of uncertainty, even though I think Biden's position is good. I've thought that for months. And frankly, I'm, I'm probably more confident in his chances now than I've, that I've been throughout the cycle. And, and I mean, just based on this morning, who knows what the next, next month's going to bring, right? So, um, yeah, you, you never know. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, again, we're, we're speaking sort of right after, or just, you know, several hours after, you know, overnight after the, the, uh, coronavirus diagnosis for the president took place. You know, that, that is kind of a wild card. Now, again, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's going to change things, but we have to be cognizant of the possibility that it could. Right. Right. Well, looking at the Senate and I wanted to start really in, in Virginia, Mark Warner, the, the polling in his race isn't very close. And I, I think Kyle, when I, when I think about Mark Warner six years ago, you know, he eked out a victory over Ed Gillespie by less than 20,000 votes. And um, it, it just feels like, you know, he's going up against Daniel Gade now and polling is, you know, has him um, pretty comfortably ahead. But is is this race, you know, as you look over the last six years and where Warner was um, with kind of finding himself, I don't think in, in, in kind of an unexpected fight with, with Ed Gillespie there on election day, but is it kind of a microcosm of, of the way Virginia's trended over the last, um, over the last six years? Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, 2014 was a pretty bad Democratic year overall. Um, that race kind of, I think, snuck up on a lot of people, um, including Warner, I think, to, to, to some degree. It ended up being, you know, like a one-point race, basically, or slightly less than a one-point race. But even, you know, in that election, I think Gillespie actually won Loudoun County, which is the kind of very affluent, growing, uh, kind of suburban, exurban county in Northern Virginia area. Um, you know, Warner's going to very easily win Loudoun County this time. And the the democratic trends in the three big urban areas have sharpened so much that the president or sorry, the president's position looks very weak in, in Virginia and Warner's position looks pretty good. I think, I think Gate is, is, is a perfectly reasonable candidate. And um, I think he's certainly a better challenger than Corey Stewart who challenged Tim Kaine in 2018. And so I, I do think the race probably will be, will be, uh, will be closer. I think Kane won by about 16 points. Um, but uh, I, you know, I still think of, of Biden as being a pretty decent favorite in Virginia and, and, and Warner as well. And, there, and there, there may not be all that much daylight between the Senate result and the presidential result. That would be a big change from 20, 2008 when Warner first got elected, where he won in a huge landslide and Obama carried the state, but only by, uh, uh, I think it was about four points. Looking at the other Senate races, I believe you all have right now uh, 49 that are kind of at least leaning Democrat, um, or at least the Democratic voting bloc, I should say. Uh, 49 um, for Republicans with two toss-ups. You know, where, where's kind of, uh, your toss-ups are in Iowa and North Carolina, but are, are there any other you know, races that, that um, maybe outside of even, you know, Maine gets a lot of attention um, obviously, Arizona, Colorado, where those flips are, are um, being projected to happen. But where's kind of your attention is, is the last month? Um, kind of we come down the stretch of the last month. Uh, look, I think what's, what, what's interesting here is I think the race for the Senate is still competitive. And I don't think that the Democrats have necessarily put away some of their best targets. I mean, I think Colorado is in pretty decent shape for Democrats. Uh, Republicans are going to flip Alabama. 
But, you know, Arizona, Democrats are ahead, but, but that's, you know, that's not done yet. I think the Democrats are ahead against Susan Collins in Maine. Um, North Carolina, Iowa look legitimately close. The Democrats actually are probably leading in both of those races right now, but, but not by a ton. Then you also have another group of races that we categorize as sort of like lean or likely Republican that are not, you know, they're, they're not, they're not, um, they're not out of range of the Democrats. So two Senate races in Georgia, uh, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, uh, Steve Daines in Montana, um, Dan Sullivan in Alaska. And so I think the danger for Republicans, even though they're, they're, they're certainly capable of holding the House majority, is that if things break against Republicans down the stretch here, they could lose a lot of seats. Like, like they could be, you know, they could go from 53 to 45 or something like that. Um, you know, best guess now is I think the Senate will be very closely contested between two parties and that the, the, the next majority is, is probably something like 51 or 52 seats or even 50-50. But again, you know, we're here in a month and things have gone south for the Republicans. There's a lot of ground for them to lose in some of these states. Turning kind of to the House and where Charlottesville is, the, the fifth district in, in Virginia, you know, maybe uh, six or seven months ago, people might not have thought this race would have been as competitive. But Cameron Webb, the Democratic nominee going up against Bob Good, who, who um, ousted Denver Riggleman and kind of a, a weird primary process. You know, what, what's kind of how have you reacted to the way that this this race is, is played out? And, and all of a sudden, the fifth district seems like it's in play for, for Democrats. I think if Riggleman were still the nominee, I think the Republicans would, would, would be favored in this district. Although I do think that Cameron Webb is an impressive candidate is running a good race. I'm, I, we don't know right yet um, what Webb uh, raised in the, the third quarter. The third quarter ends September 30th, and um, those, uh, those, those uh, numbers will, will start trickling out. But I'm assuming he's going to have a significant resource edge on Bob Good. You know, the premise of Good's uh, nominating challenge to Riggleman was essentially that the, the fifth district could, could stand to have a more conservative member of Congress. And I think Good would be more conservative than Riggleman is. That's not to say that, that Riggleman is really all that moderate. I just think that Good is, is clearly to the right of Riggleman. Uh, Good is, is testing that theory, you know, because it's possible that Good is a little too conservative, even for a conservative-leaning district, and that, and that Webb is going to run a better race than him. And in fact, we've seen Congressional Leadership Fund, which is probably the most significant now outside group on the Republican side for the House, they're starting to spend money in Virginia five, which is, is a telling sign of competitiveness. And then I, I actually uh, live in Henrico County in the seventh district um, where Abigail Spanberger flipped that district in 2018 when she um, defeated Dave Bratt. She's going up against Nick Freitas now. It, it kind of feels like in my very unscientific poll, I live in the, the suburbs of Henrico County where Spanberger got a, a ton of support. Um, it feels like there's a little more support for Spanberger even this time around, more signs as I walk around the neighborhood. Um, but I'm curious, kind of your take on that. Yeah, there's a real split in this district in that the, the parts of it closest to Richmond, which many of those places used to be really Republican, are now sort of trending more Democratic. I think like Chesterfield County, the, the, the you know Richmond suburbs, exurbs, is a great example of that kind of kind of county. Whereas uh, uh, you know Spanberger is not going to do as well in, in the more kind of rural parts of the district in, in uh, Central Virginia. Um, I think Spanberger's favored, not like an, in an overwhelming way, and it's a competitive race that's got outside spending in it. Um, but uh, it's also a district where you probably will expect Biden to do better than Clinton did. Um, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that Biden could actually uh, could actually flip the district, um, which is something I'm, I'm curious about. I think uh, 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 Trump carried it by I think about about a half dozen points. Um, but we know that in districts that are um, 
that are kind of sub suburban and that have a higher than average percentage of, uh, of residents with a four-year college degree. Um, th that's sort of a demographic indicator that a place may be trending democratic. Uh, and Virginia 7 is, 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 is doing that, I think. Um, so that should be, I think that should be okay for Spanberger. And then, uh, and then, you know, the district's going to be redrawn, um, following the, uh, 2020 census. Uh, that's another thing that's actually on the ballot is this redistricting amendment, um, in Virginia. Um, but, uh, I, I do wonder if the district could, could change dramatically and, and, um, maybe could actually be drawn in such a way that makes it more democratic. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that, um, that if Spanberger wins, that maybe Charlottesville would actually end up in her district because the border doesn't, it comes somewhat close to Charlottesville as it is. Um, and if Democrats still control the process, uh, it would, it might make some sense to put Charlottesville in the district. Although if Cameron Webb wins too, they'll probably want to do some things to, to protect him, but, it, but maybe we're also going to have this, uh, this uh, nonpartisan redistricting method, and maybe the districts will change a lot. But you, you know, also the population growth is in the parts of the district that are getting more democratic. Right. We we actually we did an episode a couple of weeks ago just talking about all about Amendment One and the, that redistricting process and what what folks are voting on, and that that certainly would be a bit of a game changer having that commission drawing the the boundaries as opposed to. Um, it'd be Democrats uh, if if that amendment fails. You know, similar dynamic in the second district where uh, Elaine Loria, she flipped the district in 2018. There's actually a rematch this go around with, with, um, with Scott Taylor. And, you know, that's also a, a district that Trump carried in 2016. H how competitive do you think this is the, the second go around and in and, and a repeat um, two years later? Virginia 2 is a consistently very competitive congressional district. It's also one that is a um, district that is a district that Trump carried. Maybe Biden could carry it, but I think it's a, it's it's a, it's a right of slightly right of center district. Um, I think that, that Luria probably continues to benefit from the fact that this, this uh, um, scandal around Scott Taylor's campaign and this, this effort to get a third party candidate on it on the ballot in 2018 um, kind of, kind of backfired and, and uh, led to some, a lot of legal questions about, about some of uh, Taylor's campaign staff, you know, that's, that's still going on. And so that's the cloud that continues to hang over uh, Taylor's campaign. Um, you know, Lurie's the incumbent there. It was a close race last time. I, again, I just like with Spanberger, I think I'd give a, give a little bit of an edge to Luria, but uh, you know, this is, this is, these are the kinds of seats that Republicans really are trying to win back to try to, um, you know, uh, make up ground in the house. Uh, and, uh, so it's a, you know, it's a competitive race and, you know, for redistricting in that district, um, uh, given how, just how competitive, like and big Virginia beach is and some of those other communities in that, in that region, um, that's long been kind of a swing congressional district and it very well may continue to be so. It, you know, last question here before, before, um, our closing question to wrap up, but are there any other house races in Virginia you think that are worth, uh, keeping an eye on where something unexpected may happen or, um, it feels like those three are really the, obviously the most competitive. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, Democrats defending two and seven Republicans defending five, you know, Jennifer Wexton one beat Barbara Comstock in, in Virginia 10, but that district is really, that's a place where, where Biden's probably going to win in a, in, you know, by even more than Clinton's 10 point margin. There's, there's not much indication Wexton's in any trouble. Um, you know, uh, one that I don't, we have rated as safe Republican, um, but uh, Virginia's first congressional district is one that, uh, um, you can see a little bit of a democratic trend, but I think the district's too Republican to be truly competitive now, but I'm kind of curious to see how it maybe gets redrawn. But um, that region, like kind of like Fredericksburg, the Northern Neck, um, 
that may be the next part of Virginia where you start to see a little bit more democratic growth um, as kind of the entire eastern part of the state becomes more urbanized. Uh, so that's or, or sort of suburbanized or exurbanized or what have you. But um, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily on the radar this time. We'll ask you the question that we we always wrap up with with all our guests. But what's a leadership lesson that you've learned that you as uh, someone would have shared with you as an undergraduate student? Um, I think if you're in a position of leadership, you need to learn how to delegate. And I personally am still not as good at that as it probably should be. But if you do that, not only do you, you know, if, if you are in leadership, it gives yourself more time to think about big picture issues, but you also can try to build confidence in those who work for you. Um, so that's, you know, that that's something. And now granted, you know, it's a fine line because you have to be confident in whoever you might be trying to delegate to, but the only way you're going to get confident is if you start to trust people to, to do that. So, um, and uh, I did, you know, I, when in undergrad, I was the editor of the, the, the post, which is the uh, 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 student newspaper at Ohio U, um, our, our, our equivalent to the, the, the Cavalier Daily. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's not like a real, like, I mean, it is, in terms of hours, it's kind of a full-time job, but it's not, it's not like a real job, but it is a job where you're in, you're at the head of a, of, of a big organization, basically, and you've got dozens of people who work under you and uh, that was a I think that was a good experience um, and, and a learning experience thanks so much to Kyle Kondik for joining us we will be back with another episode next week stay safe